Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. To know we're in an extended series on the lives, uh, of, the lives of Eliyahu, Elijah, and, and Elisha. Today is part four. Uh, we're going to look today at the end of Elijah's earthly life as he's taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Uh, and we're going to see the commissioning of Elisha, the successor, uh, who asks for a double portion of, of Elijah's anointing. So turn with me to 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 15, and then we're going to jump over to 2 Kings 2, beginning in verse 8. Uh, so 1 Kings 19, 15. The Lord said to Elijah, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazio came over Aram, which is modern-day Syria. Uh, also anoint Jehu, king, uh, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as the prophet. Jehu will put, Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazio, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went up from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him, threw his cloak around him. Uh, Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my mother and father goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elisha and to become his servant. And then 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, Elijah and Elisha, they were walking, and they stopped at the Jordan River. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken up? Uh, from you. Uh, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it'll be yours. Otherwise, not. We won't. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Eliyahu, Elijah, went up to heaven in a whirlwind, the tornado we just talked about. <laughs> Uh, Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of, of, and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. But he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elisha's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and the left, and he crossed over. So here we see in this famous passage, uh, uh, Elisha being ordained, as it were, into the ministry uh, as a prophet and being confirmed uh, in that call. So we say, well, he was a famous prophet, I'm not that, so why is this relevant to me? In every way. Were you just thrown into this world, or were you also called? Does your life count? Does your life make a difference? Are you here for a reason? Or did it just happen? Did you just happen? Just happen. You know, the famous musical name is, 
Uh, the night before all these idealistic young men are going to die on the barricades in Paris, uh, they sing a song to each other called Drink With Me. And one of the lines from the song is, is this, and I'll put it on the overhead. Uh, Will the world remember you when you fall? Could it be your death means nothing at all? Is your life just one more life? Now, if there is no creator, if you just happened, if you're just an accident, the answer is yes, your life and your death mean nothing. You're not going to make any difference. There's no purpose for you being here. You just happened. Or alternatively, are you called? Are you called by God? Uh, and if you're going to understand whether there's any purpose in your life, you have to understand the call of God and the call of God on your life. You've got to understand the call of God for you and find the call of God on your life and realize that you are indeed called. So let's look at this narrative and draw out some lessons uh, about the call of God. So first, uh, who do we have here in this passage? Uh, what do we know about Elisha? Uh, first of all, we, we know he's rich. How do we know that? Look at 1 Kings 19, 19. It says he had 12 yoke of oxen, meaning 24 oxen. That's an enormous number for an average Israeli farmer at the time. And he's a whole, we also know he has a whole team of servants who are helping him plow the first 11 pair because it says that he himself is plowing the 12th pair. So he's incredibly wealthy for that day and time. He owns these 12 pair of oxen himself, which is confirmed when he slaughters them you know, to, uh, to, to uh, hold a feast for the village. The people, the people would normally only eat meat uh, like, th- uh, like this for a special occasion, like for a wedding or something. So it's very unusual to have this huge feast. So first of all, we see he's rich. Second, what is he called to? When Elijah comes up to him, puts his mantle, his cloak around him, Elijah is calling him to be a prophet. He puts uh, the prophet's mantle on him to symbolize uh, this call. But think about this. What would this cloak have looked like? Now, Elijah's been on the run for three years now, during three years of drought. Uh, uh, Elijah's had a price on his head. You know, Jezebel has sworn to kill him. And therefore, this cloak must have been awfully foul, <laughs> awfully dirty, awfully coarse. And here's what's going on. Elijah's not just calling Elisha to be a prophet. He's calling Elijah away from his life of comfort, away from his life of power, away from his life of status, into a life of poverty and danger and fear. And what does Elisha do? He says, yes. He runs after Elijah and he says, let me just kiss my family goodbye. And then when Elijah says in 1 Kings 19, verse 20, put the thing overhead, go back, what have I done to you? Uh, that, that, That does not mean go away. Rather, Elijah's simply saying, okay, go ahead. And then Elisha follows him and becomes his attendant. And if you trace carefully the, the chronologies of all the kings of Israel, different kings under which Elijah and Elisha prophesied, uh, then you'll see that Elisha was actually an apprentice to Elijah for 18 years. Now in 2 Kings 2, finally the days come 18 years later for Elisha to assume his role. Elijah and Elisha, they're walking along with 1 Kings 2, verse 9. When they crossed the Jordan, Elisha said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion, as the famous passage, double portion of your spirit, Elisha replies. Now, at one level, this sounds like he's saying, I want to be twice as good as you. <laughs> but that's not what he's saying. Hebraically, a double portion is the inheritance that goes to the firstborn son. Uh, in the ancient Middle East, the laws of primogeniture were, were paramount. Uh, so what Elisha is saying is, 
I want to be, in effect, your spiritual firstborn. I want to take over your calling, step into your shoes. I want to be as powerful and as effective as you. I want to have the anointing and the inheritance as your firstborn son. That's what Hebraically a double portion means. I want to be your successor and be every bit as powerful and effective as you were. So Elijah says, okay, but only if you see me go. Notice Elijah doesn't say, uh, if you're given the double portion, then you'll see me go. No, he says, if you see me go, then you'll get the double portion. And then suddenly down come the chariots of fire and the horses of fire. And they take Elijah up to heaven and his cloak falls. And Elisha goes back to the Jordan River where he's just seen Elijah part the waters with his cloak. And so Elisha now himself smites the river with the cloak and exclaims, Where now is the Lord of Elijah? And the river parts. And when the river parts, that's God's way of saying, You've got it. You've got the double portion. You will be as powerful and anointed and effective as Eliyahu, Elijah. Now, what do we learn from this? Number one in the overhead. Now, first, we, we learn you need a call in your life. We learn three things. Number one, you need a call in your life. Uh, you need a sense of God's call if you can have any purpose in your life at all. If you can have a powerful life, you need the call. Second, we learn the reality of the call. And then third, we're going to learn of the power for the call, to live out the call. So we'll look at, look at number one, the need, number two, the reality, and number three, the power of the call. First, the need for the call of God on your life. Elijah and Elisha, they show something very important here. Look at Elisha. As I said, he's a wealthy young man. He's overseeing a large farm with many oxen and servants and large fields to plow. Uh, he's in charge. He's successful. Uh, he's comfortable. He's got everything the world can offer. He's got power. The fact that he kills the oxen, as we said, means that they're his. He's the owner. Uh, even though in other ways in those days he's still under the authority of his father. Uh, but he's in charge. He's got the power. He's got wealth. He's got status. He's got everything you can ask for. And yet, when God calls him, he's revolutionized. When the call of God comes, he's willing to give it all up. When he burns his yoke and plow and slaughters his oxen, that's his way of saying there's no going back. He's liquidating his farm assets. He's burning all his bridges. He's not leaving himself any options behind to return back to his old way of life. He's saying no turning back. Just like when Matthew left his tax collector's booth to follow Yeshua. Once he abandoned his post, he could never get his old job back. He was forsaking all to follow Yeshua. In the same way Elisha's forsaking all to follow God's call. I know... He doesn't sell his farm equipment and his oxen and pocket the money. No, he slaughters the oxen. He uses his farm equipment as wood for the fire to cook the meat. And then he gives it all away by holding this huge feast for all the people of his town. As I said, people in those days did not eat meat as part of their regular diet. It was a luxury for special occasions. Uh, So realize what's going on here. Something has happened in the heart of Elisha. Uh, Elijah, in essence, says to him, I want you to leave your comfort, leave your power, go into a life of service and sacrifice and poverty and hiding. Uh, because Jezebel's still after, you know, the prophets of God. And, and Elijah says to him, I want you to give up all your power and become weak. I want you to give up all your safety and become vulnerable. I want you to give up all your wealth and become poor. And what does Elisha say? 
He says, oh, maybe I'll try to handle it. No. What does he do? He immediately says yes and asks for only two things. He asks only to, to kiss his parents goodbye and to throw a farewell party uh, for his village. What's going on? There's an inner revolution going on in the heart of Elisha. This may not be the way you or I would respond, uh, or maybe it would be if you had the same call of God on your life. Have you experienced the call? If you have, everything the world can possibly give you, but you don't have the call of God, you are just a shell compared to what you could be once you experience God's call. In fact, this is brought home in the recent New York Times magazine uh, called The Me Millennium. And the issue of the magazine starts off by saying this. We'll put the on the overhead here. It's in the New York Times magazine. It says, The modern era began when we threw God out of the center and put ourselves there. The modern era began when we said God should no longer be in the center. When God was in the center in our culture, our own personal needs and wants and desires were not paramount. But now... We put ourselves in the center. We put God on the outside. We said, if you want God, that's fine. But the important thing is you've got to be free. You've got to be free to, to be yourself. You've got to be free to do whatever you want. You know, it's amazing how honest this article is about the state of American society. And how we've kicked God out and replaced him with the self. The self is now king. Uh, we no longer sacrifice our needs or wants or desires for God. Because now it's all about me. Because I'm my own God. That's the state of American culture today. Uh, the magazine then also includes a whole series of articles, after this lead article. And then one of the articles includes uh, this following personal account as an example of how this new reality actually plays out in the life of an individual. Uh, the author of this next article, David Samuels, he's secular, he's from New York City, he's a professional, and he writes this, you have it on the overhead. He writes, by the time my girlfriend and I broke up, I concluded the problem wasn't sex or romance, or a high-pressure career, or guilt, or even the boredom inherent in serial monogamy. Our inability to imagine a future together wasn't ours alone. It's a symptom of a larger fracture or collapse involving hundreds of thousands of people in their 20s and 30s today. who seem to lack any sense of, of necessary connection to anything larger than their own narrowly personal aims and preoccupations. In the aftermath of the so-called rights movement, where everyone is obsessively focused on their rights, the basic laws of social gravity have lost their pull. We're free to be whatever we want to be, outside of any traditional roles. But this freedom from the gravity of age-old constraints has been accompanied by a weightless feeling that attaches itself now to even the most fundamental human decisions. Why bother about anything? Why get married? What are families? What are they for? Who's to define a family? An actor friend of mine in L.A. hoped that by having a child it would provide a sense of consistency and purpose to his life. It's something to do, he said. <laughs> it's what all of us were doing. Looking for a way to, to, to fill up all the empty spaces we had at night. But the problem is this. The self allows us to function in time, but it was never meant to save us from death or to imbue our life 
with meaning or purpose. The self, all by itself, is simply the root of selfishness. And it's selfishness that makes us unhappy. Wow. What is he saying? He's basically saying, let me put this on the overhead, he's basically saying, it's not, I'm summarizing now, if there is a God, I've got to do what he built me for, I therefore don't have total limitless freedom, but I have purpose in my life. But on the other hand, if I want to be absolutely free of all laws and constraints, so that I, like I say, no, there's nothing I have to do, there's no call on my life by a creator, I'm totally free, yes, but then my life is absolutely meaningless. And there's really nothing between these two options. This writer of New York City, he wants to be totally free, and God is dead, not to submit himself to any codes of morality or conduct, anything higher than himself, and his wants and desires and appetites. But he's finding out that his life, therefore, becomes meaningless, and there's no higher purpose, and ends in boredom and apathy and complete self-focus and selfishness. You know, Shakespeare put it well in Macbeth. He says this, and on the overhead. Uh, out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his, uh, uh, his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So I'll get on the overhead. If you want to be absolutely absolute freedom, you have to live with total meaninglessness. But if you want purpose, you're going to have to have limits. Yes, amen. Listen again to what this, this author in New York City says uh, for the reason he broke up with his girlfriend. I'm going to summarize. He says, I can't, I can't imagine a future together with her because I'm so free, uh, I'm so unlimited that I've got absolutely no purpose in life. And he realizes that therefore no unity is possible. So what's our text, our text saying? It's saying you need a call. You must have a call. You don't have a call from a creator. If there's no personal transcendent creator God who's built you for something, then, then you're just an accident. And you're free, but, but so what? You're free to be this, you're free to be that. But what's it all for? There was an emptiness inside Elisha, despite all his wealth. He probably didn't even realize he was empty. But when the call came, when he connected to the purpose of God for his life, this, this bubbled up inside of him, this, this inside life, uh, an inside festiveness uh, that wasn't even evident before. So, point number one, you need a call. Point number two, we learn here not only do you need a call from God, but we learn the reality of the call. So in 1 Kings 19, Elijah throws his cloak, his mantle on Elisha. And then in verse 20, he says, Then Elisha left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Which means... Elijah put the cloak on him, and Elijah has walked away. He didn't say anything to Elisha. He just put the mantle on him and walked away. So Elisha has to now run after him, and he says to him in verse 20, uh, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll, I'll follow you. What does Elisha, Elijah say? Again, verse, at the end of verse 20, what have I done to you? Uh, meaning, what are you asking me for? I haven't called you. This isn't my call, in essence, Elijah saying. I'm not the one who called you. You're, you're talking to me like I'm in charge. I'm not in charge. In fact, you're not even my choice. <laughs> I have no idea why you're the one. <laughs> I have no idea whether you should be burning your plow and kissing your parents goodbye. Go ahead. It's fine with me. 
It's between you and God. It's not my call. Elijah knew that the call of God is something that supernaturally comes to you. It's not something you unilaterally come up with on your own. There's an outside reality to it. So Elijah shows us there's an objective reality to the call of God. And Elisha shows us there's two, two aspects of this call. And you've got to get in touch with both of them if you want a life of purpose. Uh, we see a hint of it here with Elisha uh, because of, uh, of Elisha's twofold, this twofold life uh, after this. So the two call of God are this in the overhead. Uh, uh, number one, God calls you to become something, uh, to, to be something, and he calls you to do something. There's a call to being uh, and a call to doing uh, on the overhead. Uh, the call to being is absolutely general, and it's the same for every person. We are called to be in Messiah Yeshua. But the call to doing is absolutely unique to you, absolutely particular to each person. And unless you have both, you won't have the, uh, we together as a community, we won't have the necessary unity and diversity uh, in the congregation, in the body of Messiah. So first one is Elisha is called into an apprenticeship. 18 years, he served as an apprentice for 18, 18 to 20 years, and then he served as a prophet for another 30 years. So imagine, it's now 18 years later, Elisha's wealthy parents are talking to their wealthy friends and neighbors, and one friend says, well, well my boy is now second in line to become high priest. Another friend says, well, my son is, 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 the, is the head of the, of the medical choir. Another says, well, my son is now captain of the guard. And they say, how's Elisha doing? Isn't he in his 40s by now? Well, well he makes Elijah his breakfast. <laughs> he washes his clothes. <laughs> He's Elijah's attendant. He's valet. What? <laughs> Why was Elisha uh, put into 18 years of apprenticeship? Because the greater the doing, the more important the becoming. Yeah. Elisha was called to become something. Because you are made in the image of God, but you're also fallen and you're flawed. The first thing that has to happen is that God calls you to become like Yeshua, his son. God calls you to become a person of love, a person of justice, a person of wisdom, a person of righteousness, a person of self-control and humility. God says, I'm going to call you out of your condition of brokenness and self-centeredness. I'm going to call you out of your condition of pride and judgmentalism and envy, and greed, and lust, and resentment. And I'm going to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit within you and regenerate you. So you become a new creation. I'm going to put my love upon you. I'm going to woo you. I'm going to let, and let you know how much I want you to be part of my kingdom. Part of my covenant people. Now, it, may, it might take 18 years of walking with me before you're ready to actually do anything. But it has to start with being, not doing. It has to start with your repentance and surrender and faith and a new birth. Supernatural regeneration by the Spirit of Messiah. That's the first thing. This must come first. Then the, and this call goes to every human being, everyone. Look at Luke 24, 46. Yeshua says, Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to everyone, to all nations. Kogoyim, all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Matthew 28, 19, the famous Great Commission. Yeshua says to his followers, Go and make disciples of Israel. No. Go and make disciples of all nations. 
Acts 17.30. Paul tells the Athenians, You know, in the past, God overlooked your ignorance. But now, He commands all men everywhere to repent. To repent means to turn around, to turn from your sins, to turn from yourself, to turn from your self-centeredness, and to turn to God through Messiah Yeshua. And the Lord is calling everyone, Paul says, all people to this imperative. He calls all men to repent, and he offers all men and women his salvation. 1 Peter 2.9, we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every one of us, uh, he's calling us out. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works. The word for workmanship is the word poema, which is where we get our word poem from. What Paul is saying is here that God is the artist and you are his work of art. Paul has the audacity to say, think of an artist. Think of how an artist gets a vision for something incredible. A vision for something dynamic. A vision for something beautiful and rapturous. A vision. And think of how that artist now does everything possible. He slaves away, goes to incredible lengths, to make that vision a reality, a concrete reality. And Yeshua is looking at you that way. You are his workmanship. And he calls us all to be filled with his spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. God is calling us to be conformed to the image of His Son. So you may ask, well, well, well how do I answer the call to being? Uh, you answer the call the same way Elisha answered it. Number one, you have to burn your plow, which means I'm not just going to try this for a little while. I'm doing it irrevocably and unconditionally. Uh, I'm not going to just, just try this. I'm not going to just see how it works. I'm not going to just try this for a while temporarily, conditionally, see if it works out or not. No. Burning your plow means, Yeshua, I will follow you no matter what the cost. No matter how it looks, no matter how I feel, no matter what other people say, it's unconditional. So first, you've got to burn your plow. Second, you have to become a servant of the prophet like unto Moses, Messiah. Even as Elisha became a servant of the prophet, Elijah. And third, you've got to become a servant of the word. Again, even as Elisha became the servant of the prophet Elijah who spoke God's word. Because the prophet, the role of the prophet is to speak forth the word of God. Now Elijah didn't have the whole Bible, uh, but he had a prophet who spoke forth the word of God. You've got something better than Elijah. You've, you've got Elijah and all the rest of the scriptures, in both the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. So if you want to become what God is calling you to be, if you want to know what, what you were built for to be, you've got to among other things, read and study and meditate on and memorize and pray over what I call prayer read the Bible. The Bible, the Word of God, it encourages you, it inspires you, it convicts you, it guides you, it sets a standard to follow. And sometimes you'll be offended by certain parts of the Scriptures. But how do you know your design? How do you know what you're built for? You can reject God's truth and be totally free to make your own decisions, but then your life has no meaning. Do you want to be free and, and meaningless? Or do you want to find who you really are meant to be? If you want to find your meaning, what you were created to be, you need to, be, you need to first be a servant of the living word, Yeshua, and a servant of the written word, the scriptures. 
That's your call to being. And then secondly, there's a call to doing. After Elijah went through this apprenticeship, he's now called to be a prophet. Now, we're not all prophets. But in 1 Kings 19, God tells Elijah, I'm going to call these three people uh, to do my will in the world. Number one, Haziel, a uh, secular king of Aram, king of Syria, pagan. And number two, uh, Jehu, become king of Israel. And three, Elisha, to become a prophet. Now, what does this mean? Does God only call people to formal, full-time religious ministry? No. Does he only call people to be prophets or pastors or preachers or priests? No. God says, any person who comes to me and submits their life to me, who's willing to give me their time and talent and gifts and resources, I will use that person. I will use their gifts and talents and I'll make them a unique instrument of my justice and grace in this world. That's why in Ephesians 2.10 again, Paul says, We're his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good works that God prepared for us to walk in. God has uniquely prepared you for certain good works. And he wants you to walk in them. There are certain people only you can help. There are certain deeds that only you can do. There are certain ways to bring justice in this world that only you can bring about. And there are certain ways of testifying to God's grace that only you can testify to. And you don't do it all, and, and you don't do it by everybody becoming a prophet. No. Notice Elisha was only one of the three people uh, that God called, right? God says, I'm going to be working through all sorts of different people. Even people that you would never expect. And he tells Elijah to anoint each and every one of them. Which means every one of them is called. So if you answer the call to being, on the overhead, you then have a special call to doing. You have, you have a unique mission in this world. And it takes time to find out what that is. So for example, when Simon Peter comes to Yeshua, Yeshua says, your name's Shimon, but I'm going to give you a new name. Cephas, Kepha, Peter, Rock. What's that? That's a call. The name Peter or Kepha basically means stubborn rock. <laughs> And Peter spent the rest of his life figuring out exactly what that meant. Because he spent the rest of his life unraveling the specific mission that God gave to him. And when you come and answer the call for being, God also gives you a specific call for doing. But it slowly unravels itself over the rest of your life. You're constantly discovering all that God has called you to do. And when you think that you've done it all, you suddenly discover there's something else. That he's, that he's using you for and wanting to use you for. Now, if you're not answering the call to being, you're never going to get to the call to doing. You need to first answer the call to being. You need to first repent and trust in Yeshua uh, and burn your plow and make yourself a servant of the word. And then three, number three, finally, well, how can I do all this? Uh, how can I uh, be like Elisha and run after and keep up with Elijah? Uh, so number, th- number three, from the overhead, number three, where do I get the power for all of this? And the answer is right here in our text, the chariot. Now, unfortunately, in most Sunday school or Shabbat school classes and curriculums, the chariot, uh, you see these beautiful white puffy clouds, right? It invokes this kind of sweet image of what United Airlines used to call the friendly skies. <laughs> and then we have this famous song based on this passage. Uh, on the overhead, the words of the song. You remember the song, Swing High, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, coming for to take, carry me home. I looked over the Jordan, and what did I see? Coming forth to carry me home. A band of angels coming for me, coming forth to carry me home. 
But that famous song does not accurately describe this text. This is not what Elisha saw. So let's ask ourselves first, what is a chariot? It's not some little horse-drawn coach who ride during the winter holidays in Central Park or some other big city. <laughs> no. Based biblically, chariots were machines of war. They're like the tanks of that day. <laughs> chariots were fearsome instruments of destruction. They were written in order to kill the enemy. You didn't say, let's go for a ride, honey, somewhere in, in my chariot. No. <laughs> the chariots, they were made out of iron, incredibly heavy, and incredibly hard to control and hard to pull. In fact, the horses pulling the chariot often died after the battle. <laughs> the chariots were never, ever sweet. <laughs> Secondly, we're told these clouds are filled with flashes of lightning and fire and a whirlwind, a funnel cloud. Look at first, 2 Kings 2, verse 11. Suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind, in a tornado. <laughs> have you ever seen a funnel cloud, a tornado? I mean, just heard a testimony about it, right? <laughs> Some of you have. One tore through Dallas last month. No wonder Elisha tears his robes in shock. <laughs> now, what's he shocked about? It's not just the lightning and the thunder. It's not just a tornado. It's not even seeing the chariots. But he knows what those chariots mean. This is the Shekinah glory of God. Amen. And that represents the justice of God and the judgment of God. Amen. And whenever these fiery clouds have ever showed up in the scriptures, they've always been potentially lethal. Remember the burning bush? You know, the fire of God's justice and his glory? What does God say to Moses? Don't get any closer. The glory of God it descends on Mount Sinai in fire and thunder and lightning and earthquake. And what does the Lord God say? Don't touch the mountain or even come near it lest you die. The glory of God is lethal because the justice of God is lethal. You and I know we cannot stand before the justice of God. There's not a person in this room who perfectly keeps the Ten Commandments. Not a person in this room even lives up to the golden rule. In fact, if you had an invisible tape recorder around your neck, and all that we did was record when you told somebody else, you should do this, you ought to do this, you ought not to do that, you shouldn't do that, all that we did was record your own subjective standards of morality, and at the end of your life on Judgment Day, God plays it all back to you, and simply holds you to your own standards, not one of you would stand. Our own mouth would condemn us. So when the justice and the glory of God shows up, no one stands. And yet Elisha sees that when the glory of God comes down, it does not destroy Elijah. In fact, it lifts him up. It does not send him to hell. It takes him, to, it takes him up to heaven. It doesn't separate Elijah from God. No, it unites Elijah to God. And Elisha, he can't believe it. He doesn't understand. But we do. We do. When Yeshua came, he said in Luke 12, 49... I have come to cast fire on the earth, and I wish it were already kindled. But I have an immersion, a baptism to undergo, and I distressed I am until it's accomplished. Yeshua had a baptism of fire to undergo. What is that? And when he died on the, uh, on the tree, there were flashes of lightning, there was an earthquake, and what was it? Because Yeshua was sunk and immersed by the justice of God, because he paid our debt, what does that mean? 1 John 1 9. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
if Yeshua has redeemed and regenerated you, if you're united to him through repentance and faith, if you're taken hold of him and he's died in your place, then John tells us when you sin, if you confess and repent, turning from your sin back to God, God is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. Now, now, I want you to note something very careful here. It doesn't say that God is faithful and merciful to forgive you. No. It says He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. What this text is saying is that if you're in Messiah Yeshua, and therefore He's, he's paid for your sin, it would be unjust for God to require a second payment. If we require payment from you, then He'd be getting two payments otherwise. So based on Yeshua's finished work on the tree, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So, so not only is God's mercy on your side, but now God's justice is also on your side. In the vision of the chariot, Elijah, he sees uh, with, with his eyes of faith a picture of this passage from John 1, 1 John 1, 9. He sees the power of God. He sees the gospel in essence in saving Elijah. He didn't know quite how, uh, but in seeing it, uh, Elisha, he's filled with confidence. He, he now knew that you can live with the glory of God and not die. He doesn't know how, but we do. He was excited by seeing Elijah ascending. But through the accounts of many eyewitnesses and the accounts of and the eyes of faith, we have seen Yeshua himself ascend. Uh, meaning that God the Father has now accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. If you see Yeshua at the right hand of God, then you realize He is there interceding for you. And that's the power. Amen. How do you get the call to being and the call to doing? You see Yeshua high and lifted up for you. And you cry out to Him in faith. You must see the Yeshua was sunk by the justice and the glory clouds of God, by the chariots of fire of God. So then in turn, you'll actually be taken up into heaven. But they're not just sweet chariots. They're not just sweet bands of angels. This is the very justice of God now working on your side. As the scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against Amen. us? This is what Elijah saw that gives him the confidence now to strike the Jordan River, separate it, dividing it from the right to the left. In Yeshua, you can have that same confidence. So confess your sins, repent, turn around, forsake your self-centeredness, Humble yourself. See what Yeshua did for you. Amen. He took the clouds of God's judgment so you could have the glory clouds of God's presence. Turn back to God. Become a servant of the living word, Yeshua. Become a servant of the written word. And walk in God's call on your life. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Let the music came to come out. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, we thank you for calling us. We thank you, Lord, for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light of your Son, Yeshua. Supernaturally calling us from death to life. Reviving our dry bones. Breathing the breath of life, your spirit, into us. We thank you and bless you for for calling us unto yourself. The revealing Yeshua, our Savior, to us. Yeshua, you are our light in our life. We have no life outside of you. You are the one who gives meaning and purpose to our life. So Yeshua, help us to burn our plow, to repent, to leave all behind and follow you. You command us to to deny ourselves and and to take up our cross daily and to follow you. Help us, Lord, 
to obey this command. Because we, we gladly agree and consent and, and submit to this, Lord. Help us to walk in obedience to it. We confess our heart's desire is, is, is nothing more than to be your servant, Yeshua, and a servant of your word. Show us clearly the specific calling and destiny and plan you have for us. You have for our life. We give you our time, our talents, our gifts, our resources to fulfill this calling. You are, we are your workmanship, Lord. Help us to walk in the specific good works you have created for us to pursue and to perform. And then finally, Lord, when we stumble, we thank you, Yeshua, for your promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so we pray this now all in your name. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Amen.